0: Welcome back to the Truth of Perspective, everyone. My name is Elon Martin. I'm your host today, and with me in the studio are Harrison Keeley, hello, Corey Schenck. hello, everybody. So today we're going to be discussing uh, Paul, a probably one of the most important figures in early Christianity to describe what uh, real Christianity is and philosophically uh, give us some kind of idea of what was intended behind the religion that has been so uh, distorted, uh, tweaked, um, appropriated in, uh, in the centuries that followed until today. Uh, he was uh, an important figure that um, I'm interested in learning more about. Uh, he had very specific ideas about what it means to be a person or one with Christ uh, in ways that I think uh, many of our viewers will find refreshing and uh, and innovative in in the types of descriptions and uh, and quotes that we'll be getting into today. Um, one of the things that has impressed me so far in reading of Paul's writings and the analysis of uh, Paul's writings is that he had a very specific outlook on what man's relationship is to God, to himself, and to others. So with that brief introduction, um, I think we could get into it and maybe start off with uh, some of those last points, What, what Paul felt was his... Uh, contribution to um, to the understanding of what real Christianity is uh, and how that may differ from what we have come to know uh, in popular terms of what Christianity is. Uh, so with that, does anyone want to take that?
1: Yeah, I'll just start off by saying, um, great intro by the way. You introduced uh, like Paul as kind of... Um, um being like an exemplar of like real christianity and i think one of the well the main reason for that is that while a lot of people may not know this paul essentially invented christianity now of course um this goes that that idea would kind of go against a lot of like mainstream christian belief because um well for just one reason if you just look at the way the bible is oriented uh the way it's laid out the gospels come first and then uh, and you've got Acts, and then you've got a bunch of letters, and you and with Revelation. And that's kind of misleading, because the Gospels, while they are, like, you know, the longest books in the New Testament, they are the, uh, arguably the latest to have been written, like second century for, for at least, like, Luke and Matthew and John. And the, the, the first writings in the New Testament are Paul's writings. And um, I think while many christians will like um will know that and accept that they don't necessarily realize the implications of that because a lot of the research and like scholarship that's being done even among some like uh believer type christians like christian uh like academics so the guys that write uh, like scholarly books on christianity but from a like a, a christian perspective will acknowledge that when you look at the the Gospels, for instance, Mark was the first Gospel written out of the four, and there are several uh, several scholars making the case that the picture of Jesus presented in Mark is largely distilled from Paul's writings. And even Luke seems to have been a Pauline Christian, like well, whoever the whoever the writer of the Gospel of Luke was, and same with uh, the the author of the Gospel of John. That there is uh, a Pauline philosophy and theology um, that basically um, basically guides those books and around which they're written. So, like Paul's philosophy is like forms the, the the structure, like the the backbone of those books. So, Paul essentially did create what became known as Christianity through various forms, like even like. Sure, by the time the Gospels were written, things had already changed, and you know, it wouldn't have necessarily been a direct um, continuation of, uh, of what Paul did, um, but the, the philosophy is mixed in there. So, the, the, the kind of inspiration for the show we're doing today has been one biblical scholar, uh, Trolls Engberg Peterson, who wrote a couple books on, uh, on Paul and his relation to Stoic philosophy looking at all the the things that um, well all of the kind of overlaps and um, overlaps in ideas and even in practices and he probably at least in my view from the stuff that I've read kind of seems to get the closest to what Paul was actually doing so when you look at this you you kind of realize that Paul actually did create like create the basic foundations of Christianity so if we look at what that actually was of course naturally after two thousand years It doesn't very, doesn't resemble very much at all what most Christians today practice. Of course, some of the ideas are there, and the words are there, and you can even find some, like, uh, what seems to me to be even, like, a coincidental, um, almost, like, correspondence between what people are doing now and what they, what it was like 2,000 years ago. Um, But no one really talks about it in these terms or in, even in the terms that like maybe paul would have understood it and, and his you know his people would have understood it back then so what was like the paul's christianity and what like what are the relations to stoicism and um what were they really doing back then well the way i see it is that the those very first christians um who were primarily in like paul was like apostle to the Gentiles, right? So he was going and trying to convert um, you know pagans, so not members of the you know the Jewish eth- ethnos or nation and the, so the way I see it looking at these, this context is that Christianity originally at least as Paul practiced it and preached it was like a, an anti-identity politics religion because this is the way I've been thinking about it recently I, uh, I mentioned the article, uh, an article I wrote on last week's show uh, that I did on nationalism, and in the end I, I had this section on, uh, on nationalism, and uh, I think that the subtitle of, of that section, the, the section heading, was something like, uh, what you value most is your God. And this was a reference to something that Jordan Peterson says every once in a while, that what you value the most is your God. So um, I gave the example of a drug addict, who, for the drug addict, um, his god is drugs, in the sense that the getting high is the most important thing, every, like, and it trumps everything else. So that would mean, you know, with the given the choice between food or drugs, you know, he'll choose drugs. And in when looking at like a hierarchy of values, like the the ethics and morals that people utilize every day, um, that that motivate and kind of delimit the. choices that we'll make in in our interactions with the people around us the like ordinarily for instance we wouldn't steal from our parents or our siblings you know unless we're a kid and we're just you know still stupid and our brains haven't developed but you know can you imagine a 30 year old just going into his mom's purse and taking like you know 200 bucks and just not telling her and and like some people do that of course but you know we don't don't ordinarily think very highly of them we consider that a, a moral failing but of course, that's what uh, you know. Really, uh, what really um, you know? Poorly off drug addicts will do. They'll steal. They'll they'll pawn items from you know their friends or their family to get money to buy drugs. So really, the that is their god. Getting high is their god, because that is the the, at the apex of you know their value, their hierarchy of values. Whereas for let's say, just an ordinary person who isn't a drug addict, they might have a slightly, um, slightly higher, you know, God than that. Who knows, maybe their God is their career. And so everything, is like, everything in their life is geared towards their career. And they might mistreat their family members in, um, or neglect other people, neglect other parts of their lives in the pursuit of their career. You can look at this at, at, at anything in, in human life. It's like, um, what is the most important thing? And of course, the 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 kind of logical uh, progression of this, like if you if you look at the um, at, at the way the way the logic kind of proceeds, then um, you'd think that well, the the higher the value, then the more well, the the better that that person would be, like just in terms of every everyday people looking at each other and saying, oh well, that's a good person, right? What is it about good people? Well, they seem to have a hierarchy of values that is so high that it um, it includes values that override all of those things that are seen as um, like less important. So for the drug addict, you know there will be or, or for, for a non-drug addict, there will be hundreds, maybe thousands of things that are more important than getting high and for the for like the, a person with their career, there will be more important things than just succeeding at your career succeeding at your career will be important, but there will be things that are more important. Like if you're, if if um, if being a, a success and you know gaining prestige in your position or your, your or your uh, you know or your career is it uh, comes in conflict with let's say something in your family life, you might choose to to do something about it to preserve your family life and to preserve the relationships that you're in. Basically, there's a a wider sphere of values that encompasses more and puts more people in a place of value as opposed to just yourself. And so in this article, I was talking about how, you know, there are basically greater or lesser gods. And one of the things, just before we get into the kind of the, the correspondences with Stoicism, one of the things about looking at it in these terms is that one of the things that Paul was dealing with If you look at, if you read the letters and you read about the societies at the time, well, it was kind of the same as today, where people identified according to various, you know, arbitrary schemes, just like today. So there was a focus on your ethnicity, your ethnos, you know, what group you were a part of. And that had something to do with religion. Like, were you a part of the, like, the Judaic ethnos? Or were you a Roman? Or, you know, what what gods did you worship, basically? And looking at it in terms of today, it, it'll be the same thing. Like, what religion are you? What color is your skin? Um, w- where are you in the class hierarchy? Um, are you a man or are you a woman? Um, you know, are you a an illegal immigrant or, or a, a full-blooded citizen? And all of these things get elevated to the extent that they are almost worshipped. Well, in some cases, they are worshipped. Like, when you look at the ethnic nationalists, they, you know, worship... The color of their skin, which just seems like totally absurd, makes sense, like because people do it, so it makes sense. Um, But you know, it seems like they're missing something, right? And most people would agree to that. I think you know, the ethnic nationalists in any state are usually a minority, and the the majority usually look at them as kind of like peculiar and um, you know a bit off their rockers. Um, And so, Paul was dealing with something similar back then, because if you think about it what he was, like when he was railing against, um, like idolatry, if we translate that into terms like that we could understand, we could still use the, the word of like, like a lesser god, like you're surrounded by groups that worship a lesser god than, like the potential, like, universal god. And what, is he, what would we mean by that? Well, these would be, be, like, people that identify within their groups based on some kind of earthly characteristics. So you're a member of my tribe, that means you're good. And that means we're good. And everyone else isn't. Right? And there there might be there might be ways in which we can let you into our tribe, but um, you know, it's the the borders are pretty uh pretty high. There's a, a high wall, a big beautiful wall around the borders of all these groups. What Paul essentially did was to try to create a new identity basically like a higher god to unify a different sort of group. So what he tried to do, and arguably like, you know, perhaps succeeded in doing at least in, during his time, was to create an identity based on what he would call spiritual features. So as opposed to the earthly, kind of fleshly um, characteristics, he was looking at the more spiritual characteristics. And What did he mean by that? Like what characterized the spirit? Well that was a mindset that was a way like a pattern of thinking feeling and behaving so if you look at one of those tribal groups that worship a tribal god everyone within the tribe is like an equal member well you break that down, this is essentially what Paul did, break that down, take the subset of that those tribal members that actually have a certain mindset combine those with the members of every other tribe every other potential tribe who have that same mindset there you've got a new group that is, you that is united um, that shares a common identity, not based on some kind of arbitrary um, feature of their biology or just their socialization, but that actually gets to something essential about them in the way they perceive themselves, the world, their place in it, and the way that they behave in the world. Mm-hmm. So he kind of took it to another level, created a new identity group, and. Um, but at the same time kind of totally devalued all the identity groups previously existing. And that's a famous quote that uh, in one of his letters where he says, basically paraphrased, you know, there is neither um, like freed person or slave, neither Greek nor Jew, neither male nor female. All of these are biological like social categories that don't get to the heart of the matter, aren't very essential when it comes to who you are as a human being, what there is is like a bunch of people together, like in Christ, like you said at the top of the show, Ilan, is that there's a new category of a, a new a new category like in which we can share an identity that isn't related just to you know some features you were born with. Mm-hmm. So he gives an example of this, I think, in Philippians, where he's talking about how much he had to boast about about his like fleshly characteristics, like you know he was born into a good tribe. Was educated, was like super successful at being a, a Pharisee, and uh, like he had all these things to to boast about. If you compare it to like the to an ethnic nationalist today, you know they'd be they'd be from a good family, you know European or Asian or you know Chinese or Japanese, going back hundreds of years, you know no no blemishes in his in his genetic um, heritage, and you know good good rich family, successful, all this stuff. And Paul essentially said, well, all of that, to me, is now worthless. All of those characteristics, all of those things that I, that I have good, like, within the world, that I have good cause to, to boast about, well, all of that, you know, is meaningless. Like, um, and so he basically created a new hierarchy of values that was totally counter to all of the common uh well, not necessarily all of the common, but the, I'd say, the, the prominent common hierarchy of values of the day. And I'd just say that that, you know, that dynamic plays itself out in every age, to the point where nowadays, well, you can see that a lot of Christian churches have still fallen into the identity politics. So they've created a new identity, just like, well, they've inherited an identity that Paul created on along certain lines, but they've inherited it as just another um, arbitrary category. Well, you were born Christian. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, it's meaningless. Paul would say that's meaningless. It doesn't matter if you were born Christian. Are you really a Christian? He'd say probably not, because what matters is if you have refined your mind, if you, if your mind has been reborn to conform with a certain model. Basically, what is your your mindset? Do you have the mind of Christ? Mm-hmm. And chances are, if you were to, act, if that question were to be asked of many Christians today, you know they would be found wanting, um, and that would go for you know everyone at, at all times.
0: Well, when when you mention the mind of Christ, uh, it gets back to your earlier mention of stoicism mm-hmm. as a kind of practice of training one's mind and being. Uh, not necessarily in the religious sense, although there probably are components of, of that as well, um, but of, of living, uh, living a life that isn't subject to the whims of the passions, the emotions, uh, the, the useless suffering of life where uh, conscious suffering, where, to borrow uh, Gurdjieff's term, um, was what we wanted to aspire to. Um, so if, if they're not Christian in, in how they would describe themselves necessarily, they, they did seem to be the intellectual and, um, and spiritual kind of inheritors of Paul's ideas.
1: The Stoics? Yes. Oh, so progenitors?
0: No, pro- actually progenitors yeah. would be the, would, per, would precede Paul. So if I said that, I, what I meant was the, um, the, the kind of uh, the the people who had uh, inherited or came after oh actually they they predate no, Paul yeah, predate yeah. that's right um, so on that note I wonder if if we want to talk a little bit about Stoicism um, do we know how how their thinking and and philosophy have possibly been of influence to Paul.
2: Well, Harrison, you had written a little bit about that, hadn't you, about the, uh, that overarching category that Paul had in mind, that overarching identity mm-hmm. of um, the mind of Christ and living uh, with viewing yourself through the eyes of Christ in your, everything that you do in your life. Mm-hmm. As the Stoics had a similar category that didn't reach quite as high, though they had kind of been blazing the trail over the you know, those preceding centuries with the idea of the difference between the rational. Uh, versus the stupid, or just mm-hmm. the fundamentally, you know, dumb person. The, the wise and the stupid. The wise and the stupid. And mm-hmm. so, if you that highest, uh, the highest uh, apex of their of the hierarchy of values was the rational man, mm-hmm. as rationality in in general. And could
1: you talk a little bit about that? How that uh, kind of philosophy could have influenced Paul? Yeah. Well, just to, uh, I'll get that. I'll get to that second. But first, just to get more to Alan's uh, question. It seems like um, like there's no direct evidence, of course, that like Paul read Stoics or you know, had a Stoic teacher. Um, there are only clues, like hints here and there in his in his letters, basically like word choices that he makes. Like he'll use su- certain words that are basically like Stoic terms. Um, but the the way in which you can kind of make the pa- the make the case and the way that Engberg Peterson makes the case is that when you look at not only these words and ideas, but kind of like the totality and the total shape that, that, um, that Paul presents in his letters, the shape is pretty much identical with the stoic shape. And so with that, that, that gets to Corey's question about the, this rationality thing, because uh, the, the shape is, is kind of best shown in a diagram. So I can't really um, show the diagram right now, but maybe I'll include it. Um, as the picture for the show when we publish it, we'll see. But the the idea with rationality is that, basically the idea is that when, like a Stoic sage, like someone who's studied in, in Stoic philosophy, when he thinks everything through, he'll come to the conclusion that he is a rational person and that all people are rational. And that self-identification um, has a, an effect of changing the the sages or you know the the aspiring sages hierarchy of values so like whereas at first we the a person would identify himself as his body his individual self you know he feeds it he gets money he he survives he essentially provides for himself to provide for his body to in the service of his body when you see yourself in contrast to that as a rational person you realize that everyone is rational well theoretically or maybe everyone has the potential to be rational but that that expands your your scope the the scope of your identity so not only are you just an individual you are a rational human and there are other rational humans those rational humans then become part of yourself so that um... so that not only are you important but the but every other rational being is important so this the idea of a stoic community would be that all of these rational people get together and maybe this would be Sam Harris's idea of a of a um a utopia all these rational people get together and they are a group of rational people all with the same ideals and theoretically they would all treat each other well according to rational principles and they would all have um have kind of killed the 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 I body like identity in themselves so that their the the rational part of them is more important than the earthly, like bodily self, and so you see this in examples from like Greek philosophy, not even just limited to um, to Stoicism, of the the idea of this like you know philosopher who like Socrates who was willing to die, um, for you know for his principles rather than like sell himself out to, just to get out of it. So that that the, the idea that there is something potentially more important than um, you know, just your earthly life or, you know, avoiding suffering. So the, the way that seems to have influenced Paul is that he took that structure and just kind of changed the terms around a bit. So the same dynamic plays out, but with what he called Christ as opposed to rationality as the kind of apex. So the way this diagram kind of looks out is that you start out as um, like this bodily self, identifying as a bodily self. But then there's something higher than than you, higher and external to you, and this would be like rationality, and because the Stoics saw basically God as rationality and vice versa, like and again like Peterson and Christianity both like the logos, the um, the, the overarching universal like organizing principle, and that thing that external thing would strike you, mm-hmm. and this might be through um, through exposure to like a, a real Stoic sage, for instance, he would tell you the tell you the, the the principles of Stoicism, and you'd be like, "Wow, those ideas really make sense." Therefore, I now think of myself as a rational person, and therefore, I am now a great person because I, you know, I I uh, I understand that, and I live according to those principles. Of course, it's not necessarily as easy as that because the, the Stoics realized that it, it wasn't just necessarily a. Um, you know, a road to Damascus moment where you're struck down and ch- totally changed overnight, but that you could, under- there, were, there were levels, right? So you could understand the principles, but fail, you know, just, you know, kind of put them in practice, but everyone, you know, you, you can never quite fully put them into practice. And then you really understand, you know, the next level would be you understand everything and you, and you act really well, but there's still like always the potential for slipping because you still have conflicting desires, and then, at the level of the sage, there are no conflicting desires because you are totally identified with that higher thing. So you, the 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 higher external thing strikes you, and then you work towards it, like you you grow towards it. Um, and then, as you as you grow towards it, you then identify and become part of the group of the people who are already there or working towards it. And then that creates a new set of rules, so you have a, a new um, a new way of interacting with all of those people like you, um, those rational people. So with Paul, it was now, like Christ was the thing that strikes you. And the way in which that happened, at least in uh, those early Christians' experience, was through their through their encounter with Paul. Paul was kind of like the placeholder or the model for the whole process. He was kind of like the Stoic sage, but he was the Christian sage who had um, like transcended um, all of these like earthly passions to the point where he said um, like in Philippians, let me read one of the quotes, he said um, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty in any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of being well fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need I can do all things through him who strengthens me he also said um, oh, what was it that basically oh well, maybe I'll find it later. There's another quote of, uh, of how he said that basically that he was willing to uh, basically willing to die and it would actually be a joy, because, like you know, suffering doesn't mean anything to him um, Oh, yeah. So he goes, out, he goes so far as to say that um, he is being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice, but he is still glad and rejoices. So his own, like, earthly suffering, and this would include, like, beatings, arrests, death sentences, um, you know, and just hardships, shipwrecks, all these sorts of things, they're kind of, like, meaningless because he's above all that. That's actually a, a, an ancient virtue, magnanimity. That is to see the things that happen to your to your body as beneath you. So it's like if you just encounter some bad circumstance, it's like that. At least according to the ideal, like the Stoic sage or even the Christian sage, should have no effect on you, or it would have no effect on you, because that's just that's just life, essentially. Like you are so in touch with um, that higher principle that whatever happens to your your earthly body is just of no consequence, because um, for various reasons, one of which is that there are the things that you can't change, right? And if there are things that you can't change, it doesn't make any sense to get worked up over them. So the Stoic sage would just accept it and be like, okay, well, I can see why that, why that happens. There's nothing I could do about it, and I'm in a lot of pain right now, but, <laughs> but I still feel joy because, because I know that and because, well, there's probably a whole lot going on there too. But um, that's kind of the overview for for the, the relation is that there's, for for Paul, it's like you start out in the flesh, and that's a, a word he uses repeatedly in his letters, and that's kind of like a a way of saying at, at those, well, we can give some examples, that would be a way of saying um, like your bodily self, like the Stoics would say, or like in your first two factors, as Dabrowski would say, like your biology and your socialization, or um um, just the lower self, it's it's kind of like the 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 NPC level um, of living, and then there's something higher. This would be um, either God Himself, or like via Christ in Christianity, or through rationality and Stoicism, or like um, through just like the, the highest value, um, like according to someone like Peterson, and through that there's a transforming effect that takes place um, that actually brings you closer to that ideal that then results in the creation of a community of people like that. And so like I said near the the beginning of of, um, what I was talking about is that this is anti-identity politics in the sense that it removes those arbitrary categories that we tend to identify with as humans and to, to, to to reach the level where um, and it seems, it it has seemed radical to many people, and probably still today it seems radical to a lot of people, the idea that you can look to another culture, another religion, um, you know, another another country, and find someone that you actually get along with and that you have similar, you know, ideals with, and that um, you can a- identify with that person in a way that transcends the the ordinary boundaries that, Categories a lot categorize a lot of human interactions and a human and human identities, like someone outside of your religion, of a different race, um, speaking a different language. Um, but if you can find some way to to communicate, first of all, then um, it basically transcends or breaks down the barriers. It breaks breaks down the boundaries to the to find something essential that that unifies you. And so, I, like I said in my nationalism article, I think that this is actually the, the genius of Christianity, but it's also um, one of its weaknesses in the sense that it has led to identity politics today, where people just identify as Christian without really understanding what that means and actually create conflict with other groups as a result. But it still is in there, in the foundational kind of text and dogmas, and I think that's the reason why, you know, a lot of people who would be considered basically Good Christians are um, open to other people, right? They aren't totally, re- totally closed to receiving a new convert. Like that's what that. I think that's the positive impulse, at least, behind like uh, missionary work, for instance, where you go to another country to try to convert other people. Well, there may be something shady about going to try to convert other people, but I think that, but there is a like, uh, I think a good impulse in a lot of the work that gets done in that, uh, you know, in that area. But the, just the idea that, oh, I see all of you potential people, and you're all potentially, you know, could potentially be part of my group. As opposed to, this is my group, I've got, we've got the members, and we're not really interested in, any, in anyone else joining. There's this kind of openness in Christianity that seems to have been a, like a new invention, um, and that has, you know, that has lasted for all these years. And um, maybe just one more comment on that, on, on like one of the positive things, is that even for Paul... Um, it was like a limited thing. So for all the people that joined his group, it's like it was only when you actually um, identified as being in Christ and realized it and then, and then therefore started to act um, in, the, in the manner, like becoming of someone who has that self-identity, that you really became a Christian. So it was still a closed group, right? It wasn't like Paul was saying, everyone's a Christian. Paul was saying, here are the characteristics that would make you a Christian. But, um, so there's this kind of like tension between this collectivism and this individualism because um, like, like with the Stoics, the move, the transformation that occurs in an individual is away from like the identification of the self as like this bodily individual and towards a shared perspective as part of a group or a community that is directed to others. So it's kind of like you're getting away from individualism and forming a group, but at the same time, then by the nature of that group and the ideals that inform it, it actually um, it actually makes you, or it actually kind of forces you to see other people as individuals, not only within your group, because you see all these other people, and okay, you you then have to treat them in a certain way, because otherwise you would be going against your own identity. But still, in in the largest in the largest sphere of things, the the effect seems to have been. To create, like um, like Peterson points out, this very deeply um, deeply rooted idea that there is the spark of the divine in everyone, and that is why we tr- that's why we have, or you know, at least a lot of people have this idea of like human rights, that every life is actually valuable in some sense, and there are certain things you can't do. And so that requires seeing the people, seeing the individuals on the planet as individuals, and that's how. Um, I think that, that that's the, the logical pr- uh, endpoint of this kind of worldview is that when you look around in the world and you see, for instance, non-Christians, you still see them as an individual with potential. You know, they may have problems just like everyone else has problems, but that individual is valuable in the sense that just like anyone else, they have the potential to transform their mind and to, um, to transform their self. Uh, transform their thinking, their feelings, and their behaviors to come in line with this ideal. So in that sense, it kind of, that like, like I said, it, it is at its root anti-identity politics. It can become identity politics through distortion and through misunderstanding, but really at the root of it it is this idea that every individual has the at least the potential um, You know whether it happens in practice or not is another question, but everyone has the potential um, of transforming themselves and uh, and basically becoming a better person.
2: Yeah, and I think what's interesting at the core of that philosophy, um, the Stoic and the Christian philosophy that you've been talking about, Harrison, is the idea of, for the Stoics, error, and for the Christians, the idea of sin. And they're both really similar Greek words. And it seems to me that, you know, at the... Uh, at the core of that, the idea of, you know, identity politics, you know, like the kind that we see today basing, you know, where we judge people based on whatever their skin color or whatever, is that at the the very heart of it, you're committing a gross error. You're committing a sin in the sense of being able to judge somebody uh, based on these arbitrary characteristics. And this uh, universal uh, philosophy, this universal ethics system, uh, really shines the light on what somebody is or the higher, what somebody could be, who Mm -hmm. people could be, the higher aspects of, you know, the potentials of human nature that actually make us unique, that make us individuals. And, you know, being able to view people through that lens uh, is just a truly protective buffer against the kinds of gross Uh, uh, kind of errors that are committed when, you know, you have groups of people just behaving like animals, seeing everyone else like animals. You give them an ethics system. You Mm -hmm. tell them, you know, not only is this the religion, but this is how you have to, this is how you have to act. Mm -hmm. You know, this is real. It's It's not somewhere in the future. This is right now. This is, you know, viewing yourself and how you behave in this community, uh, with the idea that you ha- that you have a, a, a duty, this extremely heavy duty to uh, to protect, you know, to honor, to practice the virtues, to strive to this uh, this higher, this you know, extremely high ethical uh, position that you know it might not be possible for anybody in their lifetime, but. Giving people that task provides so much meaning and so much of, like, the fuel, I guess you could possibly say, for, for human transformation and human development that comes with, you know, with suffering. And that we we waste that fuel, you know, in modern society, we waste the necessary fuel of, of suffering uh, through just all sorts of, you know, drugs and, you know, laziness and, you know, tr- that, you know, different New Age philosophies, like just be happy, you know, the commandments of New Age wisdom, just be happy, everybody's nice, be nice to everybody. But Mm -hmm. at the core of it, this Christian um, theology and, you know, ethics is, you know, it utilizes suffering to propel you forward. Mm -hmm. And you, I mean, you really can't have a human society without that. It's, It's just wasting this huge resource that we all have. We all have suffering. And, you know, it's... Like uh, I think I don't know if you've mentioned it yet, but you know the Christian slash Stoic sage they view these they, they view it quite differently than the normal person. You know, so like you said, uh, you know, human bodily suffering is is secondary. It's not mm-hmm. it's not important. You know, what's really important is the aim. But at the same time, as we know through Dabrowski's work, you know the those negative emotions, the shame, the guilt of, you know, seeing yourself in relation to this hypothetical, even if it's just a hypothetical higher position, a higher vantage point like the Christ, uh, you see, you, you know, you get like a, just an internal vision of what you could be, how you should behave. And you know, this internal compass it kind of points you in the direction
0: of, of a future that's worth living. Mm-hmm. Well, when you said that, Corey, I was reminded a little bit of our show on Insight. And perspective, and the idea that um, you know you're you're not see when you're on this path uh, to be a true Christian or or to practice stoicism in some sense. You're part of your aim, and, and the way you go about living is to try and see yourself from a different perspective, from above, to uh, to take your own petty identifications out of the equation for just long enough to get a more objective uh, view of your own behavior, of your own uh, real um, uh, motivations towards things. And, and this was something that uh, that was stressed quite a bit in, uh, in our discussion on insight, that uh, the most successful marriages, the most successful uh, people in business were able to put aside their egos and their... Um, their own kind of uh, ideas about themselves for long enough to see how uh, they really were and to use that as a starting point from which to make things better uh, for other people and for themselves. So there's always that kind of keeping others in mind uh, as, as part of the calculus of, of why one chooses to do what one does.
1: Well, I want to get back to that idea of suffering um, that you mentioned because, really, that is this one of the central themes of of uh, well, Christianity. Um, the way that the Stoics looked at it, it was a very like mental cognitive process, right? You you gained a new um, understanding through thinking, and that that new those conclusions that you had that would then change your First of all, your self-perception, but then, um, then through your values, and then you know to your desires, to the point where you only desired good things. You no longer had like the conflicting desires. You no longer had the lo- the, the lower desires. Um, so it was a matter of knowledge, right? You had to to gain the knowledge of the the true nature of the world, and therefore your pl- true your true place within the nature of the world, and so therefore you could then act in accordance with nature. Now with uh with Paul and with Christianity, it's slightly different so what's the what's the knowledge in christianity um, well for paul it's it's not just accepting that st- certain statements are true like you know jesus died was born that di- was died was born died and ro- and rose again <laughs> um it it is it is that, but it's also coming to know that those statements are are true through actual personal experience um, and actually putting them into practice so understanding that uh, or understanding Jesus Christ as lord like as Paul would put it in his letters would actually encompass knowing what his Christ did so that Christ's actions the things that happened to him and what it all means as expressed in Christ's own self-understanding like his own understanding of himself and his place in in the in the story and basically in a word that his mindset so Um, all this leads to, in Philippians, to what uh, Engberg-Peterson calls uh, Paul's maxim in this letter. And that would be um, when he writes, do not consider your own interest, but that of others. That kind of distills the whole Christ story slash myth because um, that is what Christ did as a result of his own mindset and his own self-understanding according to the story that Paul tells. So... um, I'll read just a a few quotes from something that I I wrote putting it together. So what does this, so what does Paul want from, like, the people around him, Um, like, you know, the people in his churches? Um, He writes, That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge or discernment and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness. Now, notice there that uh, that your love may over- overflow more and more with knowledge and discernment. So he's saying it's like, so thinking is still an important thing for Paul. It's like, and a lot of Christians don't really um, understand that either. It's like, they think the Bible does all the thinking for them. And that uh, a lot of Christians even like uh, denigrate the mind and the rational part of yourself as being like, a, um, I don't know, somehow contemptuous, but... It's actually uh, important because you need to, you need knowledge in order to understand what is right from wrong, to understand, to be able to discern between like the things in your environment which are positive and which are negative, which contribute to your, to your own and, and your community's like well being or not and vice versa. And so a bit later he, he puts it in these terms, live your, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. So not, you've already been saved and you can do whatever you want and you don't have to think about any of this. It's, it's your duty to actually live your m- life in a manner that is worthy. So you actually have to do something about it. It's, it's kind of, there's, there's work involved. It's not like you just verbally proclaim that, uh, you know, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior and you're all of a sudden a Christian. No, like for Paul, you actually had to, to live the life. You had to, to live a life worthy of being able to say that. Okay, and that was something in line with the story, you know, the template that, uh, that he gives as, you know, the story of Jesus. And um, so he, he then, there's another place in Philippians where he kind of puts it all together. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So and again this is just uh put in this maxim is just a distillation of what like paul's christ story was because that's essentially what his you know what his jesus christ did his jesus christ didn't act from any ambition or conceit but in humility regarded as others you know humanity better than himself and uh looked not towards his own interests but the interests of others um and so how the question How are you actually to understand this? Well, in the very next verse, right after writing that, he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So what's the story of Christ, right? Well, Paul doesn't give like a gospel story. He gives a very like small, like short story that can probably be written in like a few sentences. And that is that, you know, that Christ was this divine being and therefore was worthy of all the the glory and praise and good things that come with being a God, Because if you look at the time, and not just in in Judaism, but in the Roman world at the time, it's like, uh, you know, the emperors were all considered gods. And it was a, you know, you were worthy of great things. The, like, uh, and and, like the emperors behaved as gods, you know, as gods commonly conceived of. And, um, but no, like, Jesus wasn't just like this figure that was like, oh, I'm a god, and therefore, you know, all praise me and worship me you know, on my throne, it was, no, I'm going to go into the, the dirty world. Um, I'm going to get stuck in the muck of it Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be, um, executed in like a hard way in a very painful, you know, ignominious death. And people are going to think that I'm just a worthless human being, but I actually did it for all of you people. Um, you know, and really, because what that essentially is, is that's the distillation of kind of the, kind of what I'd consider the, the highest virtue that you can find in humanity into one individual and that is like you know the self-sacrifice for others and of course you find people doing this all the time whether on the battlefield or you know on the on the streets of of any city whenever you have a person that is willing to put their own life on the line um... uh... a parent or an adult pushing a child out of the way of an incoming car only to get hit themselves um... it happens all the time but it's kind of it is Distilled into the like the most perfect form like in a way that Jordan Peterson would say by like so So Jesus isn't isn't only that person, but he he will do that. He will he will be the the most perfect and blameless individual Who suffers the worst possible fate? In the in the worst possible way and does it willingly and does it for everyone right, so it's just it just takes every aspect of that uh, that virtuous act and just uh, raises it, like, exponentially to the, to the like, the ultimate level. And, um, and not only that, but there's another important aspect of that is the idea of lowering, one, lowering oneself to, to, to the level of the people that you are saving. So, the, this whole story, the great thing about this the, the story is that it acts like, as a type of archetype that can then be used as a template, as a model for your own behavior. And that's actually what you see Paul doing. Paul is actually adopting this story, this template, as a model for his own life. So what he does in his letters, and you can see this, is that he lowers himself to the level of, um, of the people around him. And he would do this no matter where he went. So he, like he, like he said, he was initiated into the secrets of, of like great wealth and great poverty. And so neither of them meant anything to him anymore because he could do either um he would kind of like Jesus in the 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 story of Jesus or the character of Jesus in the gospels he would hang out with anyone right he'd be on the streets he'd be working he'd be like talking probably you know with soldiers and prostitutes and and slaves and all of the like the lowest people but also like the the highest people because he also had people in his churches who were like you know city administrators and and things like that people in the like probably slaves or freedmen from, um, you know, from the, even the imperial court. So he, he would, he had like interactions with everyone and no one was beneath him. Technically they were beneath him, like in, in, I'd say in spiritual terms, but he lowered themselves to, to their level, like developed friendships with them. Then through that interaction with them, um, he tried to raise them up, tried to make them slightly better than they were by getting them to then adopt that same model. And because really when you, when you read the letters, you get the impression, it's impossible to know for sure, right, because you're seeing his, his self-representation, the way he pre- presents himself, but through reading the letters, I th- you know, I think he probably was like as close to a sage as, as you can get, that he was like, when I, when I read the, you know, the stuff he wrote, it seems like he's being honest, that really he was, li- he was practicing what he preached to the point where he was, you know, beaten repeatedly and it didn't seem to matter to him so much. He was willing to get beaten again and he was willing to, to, you know, to get killed, but he was doing it all for just this group of, you know, random people who for the most part were just nobodies that he just genuinely cared for and that care was his embodiment, his modeling of the template for them. So not only did they have like the the story that he'd tell them about uh, like Jesus Christ, but he had his own his own story and his own, his own interactions with them that they then had to as a model for them to to use and for, for them to copy. So that uh, that gets into just um, what people have probably heard of the imitation of Christ. That that's basically the model is that you have um, you have this ideal, you have this template that you can then follow. You can then uh, adopt for yourself and put into practice. And as you put into practice, um, it just so happens that that works out in a way that is ideal for um, getting along with the people in your immediate environment. Mm -hmm. So it works. It's, it's pragmatic. So, um, you know, according to the, the pragmatic theory of knowledge, like, like Peterson might say, well, what does, what does that imply? If it actually works, well, maybe it's true in a sense, not necessarily in the sense of like, oh, so, you know, Jesus was actually this guy that did all these things. No, the, the template works. It's like, there, here, is the, here is the template. Here is the, the, the storyline, you know, the plot or the script, basically. And when you follow that script, it happens to work out. So maybe there's something to it.
0: Well, what's fascinating is that, um, in a sense, you have a, a, I don't want to say a repopularization, but there is a kind of resurgence of interest in Stoicism. Uh, Christianity, even if it's been so distorted over uh, centuries, there it you know for for all of its flaws in how we've commonly come to accept its uh, ideas and precepts, it's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still a um, you know you still hear people refer to Western civilization uh, and the loss of values in contrast to a Judeo-Christian value system. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is this kernel of, uh, of, a value that has been, uh, maintained or perpetuated, uh, through, a, you know, the ages. Um, and what's so interesting about this discussion, I think, is getting to the, the very kernel, the very, uh, the very heart and spirit of, of what, what these ideas were that they would last for such a long time, uh, be embedded in, in people's minds, at least on an arc. Our typical uh, level, and um, and inspire a revisiting of these ideas uh, in this day and age, when when I think most people are in sore uh, sore hunger uh, to hear it, um, and it also explains I think in large part the uh, the success of Jordan Peterson, uh, who you know who have we heard of that that's come even close to his ability to, uh, to make all of these ideas, um, accessible and to bring his very, I mean, he is, he is the modern day missionary in a sense. Mm-hmm. He, he is, uh, he is putting himself at, uh, I, I not I don't want to say he's lowering himself necessarily, but he's, he's done a hundred, uh, conferences and talks he's gone on talk shows He's subjected himself to abuse and ridicule and criticism that's been uh, almost all of it completely unfair so in, in a sense he is a little bit you know I, I don't want to exaggerate things a little but he is a little bit like a like a modern-day Christ figure uh, or at least a, a modern-day sage
1: yeah and I'd think like I'd say just I wouldn't put him at the at the top of the top like, I, like he'd admit he's he's still a work in progress. Um, I think I'd agree with him there. Um, but he is living out the model, you know for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there was an interview with him recently where someone asked him, um, you know, given all of the, like all the slander and you know libel and lies about him in the in the fake news media, it's like, well, doesn't that uh, doesn't that bother him? Like, um, doesn't it make him want to quit or something like that? And he said, no. It's like, yeah, it kind of it's annoying when it happens, but but um like he knew that was that was a possibility, that would that would come about, and it's kind of just um he just rolls with the punches essentially, because what he's doing is more important than that. He can't do what he's doing without receiving criticism. So the criticism is just, you know, it's not a priority in his mind. You know, it's not something that would uh that would influence him one way or the other, um, at least as it has has been for the last couple of years. So he's basically he has elevated like the, you know, his mission, you know, what he is there to do to a level that makes that more important than, you know, any arrows that can get slung at him. Um, so in that sense, yeah, he is, he is um, living that out. And he does do the thing of you know, lowering himself to the level of, of the people around him because he, like, he as a person is, is much more virtuous and has much more self-control and much more like experience than the vast majority of the people that, um, that listen to him right and and but uh, but by like he's got this this kind of um like principle of when he talks about abstract concepts he wants them to he makes he makes them as practical as possible and he tells stories with the intention of getting uh and this this is all stuff that he's like gone through himself or al- already learned for himself but he he puts it in such a way that you know some kid listening to him who hasn't done anything with his life can then like hear that message put it into practice and come a little bit closer to like the level that uh, you know that peterson has achieved in, in just you know responsibility and uh, and um um you know getting stuff done um, for with him it, w- within themselves and in the world right so uh, so he does kind of live out this model now you mentioned that uh, the the kind of two things the the kind of resurgence of stoic ideas and the just the fact that Christianity has lasted so long. So when I was reading this book, I was wondering to myself, well, if they're so similar, you know, why did Stoicism essentially die out, you know, to the point where, um, you know, there's no Stoic church with billions of adherents, you know, across the across the world, where the, you know, were the Stoics just not willing to, uh, you know, take nations by force and, and convert them? I think there was, some, there was actually something more to it than that. And that comes to... Basically, well, what did Paul do right to the point where it has it has gotten to this level? And I was thinking about it, and what it seems to me is that like the Stoics are kind of like while they are, I think at least in according to what I know, like that philosophy is kind of like the philosophy that most gels with you know my kind of view of the world and and you know the world you know as expansive as as possible using that word, um, but. They, but, like, relatively, they're kind of, compared to Christianity, they're kind of like the Sam Harris version, right, about rationality, and to the point where, like, they're kind of the, the, the egghead philosophy, the, egg, the egghead religious philosophy, where you have to be, like, a, you, you imagine this very smart scholar, you know, sitting down to, to think about, to, to think through all the logic of, of reason and, and all this stuff, and it's really kind of like Sam Harris, it's like, who is really like that? you know, a tiny percentage of the population. Whereas you look at a guy like Jordan Peterson, and there was something he said recently, um, I hope I can kind of get across the idea, because I, I didn't have, uh, I didn't think about it to, to get the quote, to find the quote. I'm not even sure where, where he'd said it. But he basically said something like when you're, when you're, when you're trying to, to get across like a, like a value or, you know, something long lasting, well, what's the best way to do it? You don't just teach it. You don't just say, um, you know, just like like Moses, you don't just say, here are the rules, right? You you tell a story. And even the the, the laws in the Old Testament, um, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, just like the laws in Plato, Plato understood that uh, to make laws work, you have to embed them in stories. Well, for Peterson, he said you have to not just embed them in stories, but you have to create a character, like an individual. So I think the, one of the reasons... And this isn't the only reason, but one of the reasons that that uh, Paul's Christianity was able to, you know, start the the fire that led to, you know, this uh, you know inferno. I Maybe mean, that's not the best metaphor of Christianity in the world today. Was that he embodied that he embodied that at all of that mm-hmm. into a character, you know, and like you know, like a, a Harry Potter or Aragorn or or someone like a character that actually has the traits that embody all of the principles, that that can then be followed. Because not everyone can read a philosophy book, not everyone can read a, you know, a Stoic textbook, but everyone can read a story with a character, with a hero, who embodies certain ideals, and then with a little instruction, apply that to their lives.
0: I think there's another component to this as well. Um, Harrison, you mentioned that, uh, you know, Stoicism may have had this appeal to the... Uh, egghead, which is in the minority, the intellectual, um, and but what I think these stories do, what I think that uh, Paul accomplished in uh, creating his his value system around the figure of of someone who made this ultimate sacrifice for the good of all, is that he he was able to appeal to people's higher emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's when when Paul speaks about. Uh, the, the flesh, the body, the needs of the eye. What he's talking about, really, I think, uh, is the lower emotions, the base emotions selfishness, greed, avarice, uh, you know, all, all of the types of things we would, you know, seek to work on to better ourselves, to burn off. Um, but when he created the story about ultimate sacrifice for the good of all, um, it it probably was designed in some way to uh, strike people in a way that they, that they haven't been struck before uh, with a particular idea. Uh, in uh, Boris Moraviev's uh, Gnosis, um, there's this idea that, that we do have a, uh, a higher uh, level of an emotional body, if you will, uh, a lower emotional body and a higher emotional body. So um, I, I, I would venture to guess that either intuitively or because he himself was struck emotionally Mm -hmm. in some form or another that he wanted to and he found a way to transmit um, the idea of humility in the service of others uh, in the service of a higher um, value or aim through the emotions
2: and I think one of the really alluring parts of the of Christianity is the fact that he added the big or else, you know, to that there's uh, you know, the, that's what makes, I think the religion or the morality and the religion so attractive is the sense that, you know, you get this picture of this perfect being who came to earth in order to, uh, you know, improve the lives of mankind and all that he got, you know, was murdered. Mm -hmm. And so right there, you have this mirror on human beings, and what they're like Mm -hmm. and something that I think everybody can relate to. Mm -hmm. Everybody on some level can relate to this sense of, you know, betrayal and, you know, our own low and, you know, dark and ignorant natures. And like the, the most, the most, the, the biggest injustice, like the biggest injustice that could possibly exist. And then not only that, but, uh, that then he still gives of himself. There's he is still this high, and perfect being that still forgives everyone for their sins for what they've you know for what they have done and then at the same time it's like there's still a reckoning for our for for our behavior mm-hmm. you know there's still we you know it's there's this still this apocalyptic uh, mentality that comes through in his letters where like for example he says you know like so then in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness mm-hmm. You know, it's there's a day will come will come when you will be judged for the actions that you've done for what you've done on mm-hmm. this earth, and if you're found wanting, then there will be a price to pay, and it's a high, high price. You don't know how you don't know how big it is. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if Paul ever described hell, or if that was uh, some uh, a, a later development, or like a, a modification of different. Uh, belief systems, and you know Judaism, and all these other different systems, but there is an idea that there is hell to pay yeah. for what for what humanity has done, and people could see it. You know, they could look around and they could see. Um, you know, over the next few centuries, you know, Rome's collapsing. There's famine. There's plague. There's people could see that he was right. There was hell to pay because of our human nature. And that when we screw up, we screw up big. And when like everything that we've built can come crashing down. Everyone that we love can, you know, you know, could be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Like he said, like libations poured out on a sacrifice. That's been humanity for who knows how many centuries, you know, there have just been centuries of suffering and pain. And yet there's still this idea, the central figure of the Christ who is always there, always open arms as you know, you can, you can leave, you can return to heaven or, you know, you can, you know, this isn't the end of it. You're just stuck in this land of darkness. And Paul, you know, through, after being struck by this vision of this, the highest uh, form of perfection saw that there, there still is this forgiveness for humanity mm-hmm. and that he, he said, this is the way to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, even though, you know, then you look flash forward and you've got the Inquisition, you know, but they they, they still these people and the, the the traditions still survive, I think largely because of that that deep resonance on a level that we could never articulate. Mm-hmm. And it had to have been a, you know, a visionary experience to yeah. articulate this kind of of um, truth. Mm-hmm. I mean because I think that deep down I think we all understand in some way that it that it is true you know when mm-hmm. you read through history you can see that you know the, the you know the sacrifice of Christ and the loss of innocence the fall of mankind you know the badness and the waves of madness but then there's still a way out. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: one comment um on that about the like what Paul must have experienced I think uh on a previous show, I might have mentioned a book. Um, unfortunately, I can't remember the title of it right now. But it was uh, um, about um, altered states, Paul, and altered states of consciousness. The title might be actually something like that. And it was basically it's by a um, this woman who did this study on on Paul in relation to um, like all the psychological research on on altered states of consciousness. So that would include like um, you know, well, that category would include things like. Out of body experiences, shamanic experiences, um, things like that, and she basically argues through looking at certain passages in Paul's letters that um, he was um, talking from a point of view of someone who had experienced uh, like an ex- like uh, a profound altered state of consciousness, some like profound spiritual experience, um, and. The, the point she makes that, um, that I think goes uh, against a lot of Christian theologians is that rather than Paul having this whole system set out, like a systematic theologian who's, who's thought everything through and has this airtight picture of, of what everything is, Paul is more um, grasping for the words to describe the experience. So he'll throw out metaphors here and there. They might even be seem contradictory every once in a while, but they're all in the service of trying to, trying to describe and account for and like explicate this actual reality that he has experienced. And so, um, and I think that at least that's the impression that comes across to me when I read him. It's it's like there is something like deep here that he is. Trying to express sometimes more clearly sometimes less clearly, but there's something behind that that is that is uh deeply profound and insightful and um, <clears throat> maybe to just kind of change gears a little we have like all these ideas and uh, you know we're wondering why these things have worked and I mentioned like the the idea like the pragmatic like truth of it that it does seem to work and so what does that mean well um i think one of the reasons that it that uh, like christianity was so successful primarily in previous like epochs and previous generations is because there was a worldview that um, um, a cosmology that allowed for all of this, these things to be true right so people believed in god pre- people believed in in the spirit people believed in like this this uh... the spiritual realm right the, 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 they weren't materialists so we've kind of lost that that ground so the idea is or the question is if these things are true in some way, you know, if they actually work, if there's something behind it, well what is the the truth about like what is the, the cosmological truth? What is the what are the, the statements we can make about the the way in which the world is structured that would allow these things to be true? Um one of uh like um well Engberg Peterson's second book that he did on Paul is called uh Cosmology and Self, I think, in the Apostle Paul. And I think this is probably an even more controversial book that he wrote because he basically argues some things that just sound outright crazy and he says them in his book like these ideas are pretty much crazy and we wouldn't accept them as true today Um, for instance like he you 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 wondered Corey if Paul ever described hell well he didn't describe an actual hell like the like the the vision that we have like in a doom game or something of like you know a place of eternal fire with all these demons but he did describe you know what awaits the you know the sinners and un- unbelievers on the you know the day of judgment, and that would be like that they would be burned up, that they would basically like go up in flames and using that and several other you know passages, Engbert Peterson basically argues that paul had this this um this idea of the spirit um because the spirit is a word that comes up repeatedly in in paul 's letters like spirit is essential to 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 everything that Paul basically writes about it is through the spirit that we basically acquire the mind of Christ and we we basically they're almost identical in a sense that the this like when we are infused with the spirit that spirit like it is a new mind it is a, a new uh, a new like what when when our mind has basically been like piece by piece replaced by the the spiritual mind we then have the literal mind of Christ in us so we all share like something of the same material and he basically argued that Paul, we, today we would say that Paul is a materialist in a sense, um, not the modern sense, but in the sense that the Stoics were materialists, same, the, way, the same way Gurdjieff was a materialist. They, they, they viewed everything as a certain type of material. And, uh, but that that material did have aspects, of course, of consciousness, of mind. But for Paul, um, according to Andrew peterson he basically saw the spirit as a sort of like plasma, as being made of the same stuff that stars and heavenly bodies are made out of, comets. So there's even hints in Paul's letters that when, that uh, what Paul might have been intending when he was saying things is that his understanding was basically that when he spoke to the people around him, to the churches around him, there was actually a physical spirit, a, spi- a, f- a physical plasma like exiting his mouth through his speech and entering into, like, the nostrils of the, of the people, or in the ears of the people around him. And that was basically like a, you know, almost like a, a divine insemination of their minds with the spirit. And so that there was this physical thing that was being transferred from person to person, and that that's, that's essentially how, like, the, the gospel was transmitted. Again, like, sounds like a crazy idea, right? (laughs) Um, Also that, that, that the, the spiritual body, which would be, which we would be reborn into. This is the resurrection, right? Um, Paul Paul's idea wasn't that you know our bones that we would be like zombies. You know our bones would be reanimated and would you know come out of our graves. It was that we would be reborn in new bodies, new bodies composed of spirit. And um, so again, if we if we wonder what the spirit was, and and he's saying it's this like this plasma basically. Paul was essentially saying that our we would be reborn in in bodies of plasma, um, that would, and we would be like heavenly bodies, like literally like stars or like comets. Um, so just incidentally, this was very interesting because of course, like we've said before, there are very many correspondences between like Christianity, Christian ideas, and, you know, the life and legend of Julius Caesar, because the, the legend of Ju- Julius Caesar, you know, based on actual things that happened was that he, like Jesus, was betrayed, murdered, but then he was reborn and he was reborn in the form of a comet, you know, in, in uh, during the uh, well, a year or two later, you know, during the one of the games that were put on uh, by Octavian at the time who became the Emperor Augustus. So there was this template like from 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 Caesar of being reborn in a in a heavenly body. And Paul seems to have maybe perhaps either been influenced by that in some way or adapted it or or seen like spiritually that there was some kind of truth to this that there was some kind of higher form of matter higher form of life into which um you know like a a future a future humanity that we could barely envision and this is how he how he saw it and how he tried to put it into words is that oh well you know it's like the heavenly bodies we will we will be reborn as as in this new matter in these new bodies um yeah (laughs)
0: <laughs> well that's just that's just very interesting because um you know and if we don't know if Paul knew of Julius Caesar historically maybe he did maybe he didn't Oh well, he would have to have yeah everyone knew Caesar everyone knew yeah. Caesar but uh it, if he had it seems as though he had taken this uh the, the inspiration of Caesar's story um kind of distilled it down to something that was um that, that didn't turn it into a cult of personality, but rather mm-hmm. a uh, that rather took the strength of the spirit of it and um, and changed it into something that um, that didn't become about this this uh, historical figure but a, but about uh, a being that um, that didn't have all of this kind of uh, baggage necessarily. Right. yeah uh, so that that would seem to be the, the genius of it. Um, and I, I like the I like the term you used, divine insemination, because that's you know uh, we we all want to empty our cups and be fertile enough to, if it's so possible, be inseminated by the divine in some way or, or form. Um, and just bringing this around to you know taking away uh, the you know what are the takeaways of of Paul's message here? So. Uh, we obviously want to strive for, for knowledge of higher values, and uh, we want to seek them from places that um, that discern higher values credibly from lower values. Um, and I, I wonder I wonder what that uh, I wonder what that looks like for people on a, on a personal level. I wonder how it is um, how it is we go about doing that. Uh, of course, we could read these books and and uh, and think on um, their ideas and think about Christianity in its true form and um, do we do we have any thoughts on on the process itself on on making ourselves uh open or to to being struck by uh, by by intuitions, by knowledge by by things that would um, forward us on the road to a higher aim, to community, towards thinking of others, towards connection, and in, in the deepest possible sense. I think on the like on the most simplistic
1: level, without getting into a lot of the kind of uh, like Christian dogma and stuff, is it if if you if you truly believe that there is value in the world, that other people matter to some degree, you know, even if it's just one person in your life. Or maybe it's your family if that is true and that in principle other people do matter and do are valuable in some sense then is your behavior in line with your belief are you behaving in such a way as if those people matter and if not like if looking at yourself and if getting feedback from others you find yourself wanting and that uh, that you are not living up to that ideal then it is kind of it is incumbent upon you to get your actions in line with your beliefs or to change your beliefs, you know at least be honest with yourself if you don't think that other people have value then at least uh you know at least be honest with yourself. but if you do, then there's really only one thing you can do, and that is to act as if it is true and that gets back to the the second point I wanted to make about the whole idea of like of Paul's weird cosmology, about this plasma and stuff. If we, look about, if we look at that from the perspective today, you know, maybe we can't go that far yet, we don't know enough about uh, cosmic plasma and, and future conscious states of um, post-resurrection bodies. Um, th- wh- what struck me about that is that, well, we do have a, a word and a concept that can maybe take, maybe supplement this idea of spirit however paul understood it and that is like we've talked about in previous shows information because when you are speaking to someone it's not just the you know the airwaves that are hitting a person's eardrums like that's that can happen with just white noise what is being transmitted along that physical medium is information something that is immaterial something that isn't um that isn't intrinsically a part of that physical substance. It is another, another substance of some sort, or another thing, not, a, not necessarily a substance. And so that information is, is the spirit. The spirit is information. And we can tie that in, like, so we can develop a, a cosmology, you know, a, a, a set of um, ideas about the way the world is structured in which this can make sense. So we can transmit information from one person to another. And that information can be highly meaningful, because it can be highly valuable, um, because it can be highly true, you know, true in a sense that the person hasn't realized until hearing it, and then there's that moment of recognition. And what is the nature of that recognition? Well, according to the Stoic and the Christian model, there is something external and higher than, than us. The model only works if that is true. We can act as if it's true, but it only works if it actually is true, in fact, that there is something higher and external to us. That there is um, that, that matter is not all that there is to it that there is something higher, so this gets back to our, our discussions like unprocessed process philosophy and uh, and theology that there is something that something in which we are contained something higher and intelligent and meaningful and and valuable and that would be like like a cosmic mind or a, or a, the ultimate principle or the the ultimate mind ultimate intelligence and so why, why does does that truth strike us as valuable and meaningful? It's because well, because it is in the grand scheme of things, in the grand order of things, that is like a, a, like a message from God. It's like a revelation. It's like when you have that experience, and when you have that knowing and, that, um, and you, you are struck by the truth, you recognize it. And just like uh, the Stoic sage or the Christian sage, like Paul, has a, a constant experience of joy, um, well, what is that joy? The, it's the joy that comes from, well, maybe joy we wouldn't, maybe we wouldn't use that word anymore. There is a positive dimension to it, but it is meaning. It, it is the, the, the experience and the feeling of, of meaning, of, you know, knowledge and knowing um, who you are and where you are and what you're doing and the significance of what you're doing and the significance of your place in the world and the insignificance of your place. And, um, um, yeah, that's that. Well, just about uh, whether
2: or not there is something higher than us and whether that's true or not, I just thought that I'd read this interesting uh, this argument from Chrysippus. Uh, it's a, he's a stoic philosopher on the existence of gods, and he argues that if there is something that man cannot produce, that which produces it is superior to man. But the heavenly bodies and all the regular phenomena of the sky cannot be produced by man. Therefore, the being which created them is superior to man. But that which is superior to man is God. Therefore, the gods exist. I think we could go a step beyond that, and you know, based on the shows that we've done before on the DNA and the origins of life, that you know, life itself, that you know, that man trying to create you know life forms, uh, novel life forms like the kind that we see spread out all across the planet that's evolved for you know however many billions of years, you know that. Man can't possibly replicate that, but you know, life itself, the universe itself, has an implicit order that suggests uh, some sort of intelligence behind it, some sort of an aesthetic behind it. That you know, the the ancients could take for granted. I think you know, in their argumentation, they could they could theorize about it and and state you know without having to uh, without the pressures of I guess modern scientific materialist sort of orthodoxy that says you have to be able to you know test it you know with a hypothesis but um you know going back to this this different way of seeing the universe and being able to think freely you know just think freely posit ideas freely about the universe about the nature of the universe about the nature of what is higher is something that we need to do i think on an individual level and as you know as groups in order to come back to a, a system, a moral system, a, philo- a philosophical system that's rooted in the, the higher, not just, you know, our ability to hypothesize, you know, which is something that even, you know, animals are capable of doing. They get little rudimentary kind of hypotheses about, you know, how something's going to happen and if it doesn't work out, you know, you know, they're puzzled or whatever. But, you know, every, the living beings, we can do that. But we also need to do something higher, I think, and by striving for the higher, I think that's an important step forward.
0: Well, on that note, Corey, I think we're going to bring this show to its conclusion. Uh, I want to thank you and Harrison for uh, for bringing all these ideas to the table today. It was um, just a great conversation and discussion and um, I think a, a very interesting part of um, uh, our ongoing conversation on uh, on how we think about the world, cosmology, knowledge, uh, among many other things. Um, if you like this show, uh, if you have ideas for other shows you'd like us to do, other topics you'd like us to discuss, you can always write into SOT sought at SOT.net. Uh, we uh, look forward to messages and feedback about, about these shows and how you think we're doing and uh, what you'd like to hear. Um, and on that note I'd like to remind everyone to tune in to the health and Wellness show uh, that will be next Friday morning Eastern Standard Time at about 11 and the behind the headlines which is now um, newsreel with Joe and Neil on Sundays at I believe it's noon so on that note thanks again guys and uh, thank you listeners for tuning in and uh, and spending this this little bit of time with us as we Try to get to the bottom of some things. Take care. Bye, everybody. See ya.